Good morning. Merry Christmas, as it's been said already. I hope that you are getting excited about this season. We had a little gift of cool weather this morning, so at least it feels like Christmas. Uh, I know in our home, uh, it's a time of family and, and fellowship. We had a Christmas party yesterday. We got one today. Maybe that's what you're doing. Um, found out last year when COVID hit and parties were a little disrupted, we were trying to do some math, and there's a, a Christmas Eve party in our family that has been going on for like 63 straight years now. So um, there are some pretty firm traditions, I know, around this time of year. Uh, but one thing I think is cool, um, and this, this is just, I think, worth noting, is, you know, we, we talk about, or, or you hear the wor- world when we're talking about Christmas, you know, they'll say things like the magic of Christmas or the spirit of Christmas. And we as the church, because we know the truth, what the world's trying to say, we understand. The spirit of Christmas is Jesus, right? And, and the world, maybe they don't understand that. They feel it. They feel the generosity. They feel the kindness. This is all a response to the love of Jesus. And we as the church know what the truth is. And so I'm thankful for that. Um, in our household, we're trying to establish some of these traditions. My daughter just turned four a couple months ago. So it's kind of neat because this is the first year where she's able to start, you know, understanding some of the Christmas story a little bit. And so We've been doing things like walking through the nativity scene, and it's been really interesting. Um, she, she, she likes sitting down, and we go through the little figures and all this, and she's good with all of it, right? She, she understands the shepherds and the wise men and the angel, the star, like Mary, the manger, all that stuff she gets, but she kind of gets hung up on Joseph. And um, <laughs> we get to Joseph, and the, the stumbling block with Joseph is, hey, Joseph is Jesus' dad. And she corrects me and says, no, dad, God is Jesus's dad. I was like, true, but Joseph is too. And, and she's like, so Jesus had two daddies? And I was like, well, yeah, see, he had a heavenly father. And they had an earthly father. And she's like, wait, 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 wait. But, but you said God is Jesus's dad. Jesus is God. How can God be a dad, but Jesus be a God? And so now I'm trying to explain the Trinity. And so I'm like, there's God, the father, there's God, the son. And, and she's like, so wait, Miss Trinity is God. And I'm like, no, Miss Trinity is mommy and daddy's friend. She's not God. And she just looks at me and says, I'm confused. And I'm like, me too. At this point, I, I am, I am too. Right. And, but, but there is a beauty to this, right? That, that there's this mystery of God that we maybe don't fully understand. When we celebrate the incarnation, this idea that God who is fully God, Jesus uh, fully in the flesh being man, that in one body there is fully God and both fully man represented. And there's, there's a lot of literature out there on how this happens. And there's a theological term for this. It's called the hypostatic union. It's this idea that there's two natures existing in one individual and you could spend hours reading about this stuff, um, but you walk away and, and it's just a mystery. It's a mystery and it's a belief. And, and the simplest way that maybe I can explain kind of this union is that in Jesus, his divine nature does not enhance his human nature, but also in Jesus, his human nature does not limit his divine nature. They are both and they exist simultaneously. And this morning, I want to spend a lot of time really looking at the humanity of Jesus. I want to spend a lot of time of looking at what it meant that Jesus, that God actually came as a boy, as a baby boy and became a man on this earth. But before I do that, I do want to highlight his divine nature. because I think that is so important that we we don't forget this and what I'm about to say. And um, to do that, there's a a passage in Colossians chapter one. Uh, It's part of verse, a part of this passage is a verse that, is on the screen every week here, that he is preeminent. I just want to read what Paul says about Jesus in Colossians 1. And I think he so succinctly and greatly just sums up who Jesus is in terms of his divine nature here. I'm not going to talk much. I just want to read these verses. Colossians 1, 15. Paul says this of Jesus. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Would you please pray with me? Jesus, we just spent some time singing songs to you. And those praises we offer to you, you are worthy of all of it. You are worthy of the gifts that we bring. You are worthy of the sacrifices that we make. You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. You are the image of the invisible God. You're the firstborn of all creation. By you, all things were made. Through you and by you, all things are held together. Jesus, you are preeminent. You are sovereign. I'm thinking back to the last couple of weeks where Pastor Peter shared these characteristics of your love. And he talked about your uh, love being om- omniscient and, and omnipotent and, and righteous and, and sovereign and, and mutable. All these things that he talked about. We see these in this passage right here. This is you, Jesus. This is you. And you came as a baby and people came then to worship you. And we worship you now. Thank you so much for being obedient to the Father. And thank you for taking on flesh, becoming human, so that we can understand how to live our lives. Bless us this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. So Jesus, fully divine, but he also came as a human. And, and when I read the Gospels, uh, there's, there's something to me that it's just, I'm not saying it's incomplete or missing, but the stories start with him as a baby. And then literally the next chapter, he's like a 30-year-old man, right? Like, there's not even like a 30 years later, like caption, right? It's just like baby, boom, man. And there's a lot that happens there. In Luke, there's a small story of him as a 12-year-old. We're going to talk about that. But I want us to think for a moment of, of what maybe happened in those 30 years. That if Jesus was a man, let's talk about what those 30 years might have looked like. And let's start at his birth. And um, I don't know a, a pretty way to say this, but, and this is a mystery too, like, you watch Marvel movies, right? Like Thor just beamed down to earth, right? And, and like this awesome, glorious display of power. And he's like, here, Jesus through a birth canal. Like it's, it's very different, right? I work at a high school and my office is, is right off the main office. And a couple of weeks ago, I hear the secretary said, oh, we got another one. I'm like, what's going on? So I step out and there's like four kids in seats and they look terrible. Like they look like they just stepped off a, a battlefield scene from Braveheart or something. Their hair's a mess. They're breathing heavy. I'm like, what happened to y'all? And they're like, she showed the video again. I'm like, what video? They came from a, an anatomy class. They were showing a video about birth and they just, they couldn't handle it. They were, they had to leave. They were passing out. Kids were dropping. I mean, this is right. Who wants to see that? Right. But, but there's this reality that this is how Jesus entered into the story. And I think, I think that's significant because that's how you and I entered into the story. Right? That, that we share sort of this commonality. Paul talks about Jesus in Philippians 2. He says that he humbled himself to take on human nature. I think this is part of the humbling of himself. Right? That he entered the story the way that you and I enter the story. And, and when he became a baby... This led to other developments too, right? Like it wasn't baby man. There were, there were 30 years there of growth and maturation that had to happen. And so think about this. Jesus had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. Joseph had to teach him how to use the bathroom, right? Like he had to be potty trained. Someone had to teach him how to read and write. He had to learn letters. All this happened to Jesus. And, and we know that this happened because in Luke chapter 2, there's this one story of Jesus as a 12-year-old. And, you know... I kind of always laugh at this story because like Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. Kind of a big deal, right? Parents do this thing where like they compare their kids a lot and they probably get tired of Mary because she's like, yeah, I got Jesus, but Mary lost the savior, right? So they can, they misplaced and they couldn't find him. They find Jesus in the temple. And in Luke chapter two, it says in verse 46 that Jesus was listening and asking questions. This is what someone does when they're trying to learn. 
You listen attentively. You ask questions. To me, this implies that Jesus, it wasn't like the matrix where he just had, you know, everything downloaded into his brain. Like he had to learn things. He had to go through that process. And Luke, and a few verses later in verse 52 of chapter two of Luke, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. Again, this implies that there was a growth process that Jesus had to go through. Part of Jesus humbling himself, taking on uh, human nature. Uh, it's also this truth that he entered into a broken world. That our world, the created way that God designed, it was broken when Adam and Eve sinned. And part of that fallout is that God cursed the work of man. So Jesus coming into the story, he was subjected to that curse as well. He had to labor to learn. He had to labor as he worked. He went through those awkward puberty years of teenageville, right? His voice cracked. He probably did not sound like James Earl Jones coming out of the womb, right? He had that weird, like, boy voice that changed into a man's voice. And his body went through all the awkward things that teenage boys' bodies go through, right? He started growing hair under his arms and over his upper lip. His feet probably grew too fast. He probably smelled like a 13-year-old boy smells, right? No offense to Owen. He's not here, so that's fine. Okay. They're the reason Axe body spray exists. But he went through all this. And as he's getting older, Joseph is taking him under his wing and he's teaching him a trade. He's teaching him how to be a carpenter. He's learning how to swing a hammer. He's learning how to do business with people and to provide for a family. He's probably going on trips with Joseph to take measurements and hold this piece of wood, son, while I hammer it in, right? Like he's doing all these things because he's growing in wisdom and stature. He's learning just the same way that you and I would learn. And look, as he's older, he's quoting scripture. Again, this stuff wasn't just implanted into his brain. He had to study. He had to learn. He had to memorize. Here's something to consider. Being sinless doesn't mean that you maybe got every answer right on the test or that you never tripped over your own feet or that maybe you never like hit the wrong nail, right? I think sometimes we think of Jesus as just like this, this person that is, is like, I don't know, like he walks and like he never falls or he never stumbles. Or, that's not sin, right? That's just part of growing up, right? If your body's feet are bigger than the rest of you, you're going to trip. Like it just happens. Probably did with Jesus, right? As an adult, it wasn't just his physical appearance or body that grew, but his emotional side grew as well. In the Gospels, we see a range of emotions displayed by Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, there's a story of a widow. Her oldest or her only son had just died, and they're grieving. There's a funeral there, and it says when Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her. He said, don't cry. Jesus had compassion in that moment, and he raised her son from the dead. In John chapter 2, we see that Jesus gets angry in the temple when people are mistreating, mistreating the temple of God as a place of uh, market and business and enterprise. Jesus gets upset there. He gets angry there. In John chapter 11, his good friend Lazarus and the rest of his good friends are grieving over the death of Lazarus. In John eleven thirty five, it says that Jesus wept, even though he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He expresses grief and sorrow in that moment. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, he sends 72 people out to do ministry in his name. When they come back and they report to Jesus what they've done, it says that Jesus was overjoyed and rejoiced to the father because of the things that he had heard. He experienced great joy. In Luke 22, Jesus is about to go to the cross and it says that he was so overwhelmed that he started to sweat drops of blood. This is an actual medical condition. It's called hematidrosis and it's usually preceded by intense headaches and severe abdominal pain. Jesus was human. He also had to make hard choices. There's a story where he's performing miracles and he's healing people and people are hearing, catching wind of this. They're coming from all over asking Jesus to, to bless them, to heal them. And Jesus has to leave. And he says, listen, I've been called to go and preach the word of God, right? So do I stay and continue blessing people or do I go and do Maybe this thing that God's called me to do and bless even more. You ever had to make a hard choice? Like so did Jesus, right? And these stories go on and on. There are people who came and honored Jesus. There are people who came and betrayed Jesus. Anyone ever go out of their way to honor you? Anybody ever go out of their way to betray you? See, I think as we recognize the humanity of Jesus, what, what is really profound to me is that it makes Jesus very relatable. And I think that's super important because if he's relatable, then there's implications on how I need to live my life based on how he lived his life. A few decades ago, 
there was a, a group that marketed a phrase really, really well. It's something that is very common. And when I say it, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that, that you know, I've heard that one. Uh, but it actually originated a uh, long time before that. But it's the phrase, what would Jesus do? Right? WWJD. And the intent, <laughs> you got that one. Yes, yeah, the bracelets and everything. Uh, the intent there is good, right? That when you encounter a situation, got the bracelet, WWJ, what would Jesus do, right? But I, I think if I'm just being honest, um, for me, sometimes it always seems a little unrelatable. All right, so just consider this example, okay? You're leaving to go have lunch, and you're, you're trying to figure out what you want to eat. And it's not just preference on what you're in the mood for. It's also a financial decision because, let's be honest, uh, I'm not in a position to go eat at Del Porto every day, right? It's just uh, how it is. But so there's a financial decision that goes into this as well. And you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to WWJD this decision, right? I'm going to. But, but so you ask yourself, because it's financial, you're like, what would, hmm, I'm going to say Jesus. No. What would Jeff Bezos do, right? Because he is like the height of financial achievement. And, and you're asking yourself, what would Jeff Bezos do? And you're like, that's dumb. He's building rockets and going to space. I'm trying to find a few more quarters so I can upsize my drinking fries, right? Like we're, we're worlds apart. They don't even, they don't even like, that, that example isn't even relatable. And sometimes I feel like when we do this with Jesus, what would Jesus do? We think of this righteous, sinless son of God, and we think of ourselves as kind of this broken mess. And we're like, we're worlds apart. Why, why am I even asking or considering what Jesus would do in this moment? Because I'm so broken right now. And so I think a better question, a question that we need to ask ourselves is this, is how would Jesus live my life? Because you know your life. You, you, you can imagine right now, picture like what your house looks like. You know what that office space looks like. You know the people that you work around, right? And so it's easy to maybe see Jesus living that life out, right? How would Jesus live my life? Like, what would it look like if he woke up in your house, poured coffee from your coffee pot, brushed his teeth at your sink, drove the kids to their school, and then went to your place of work, right? What would it look like if he was interacting with your coworkers? What would it look like at home when you're, you're trying to get everybody settled down and maybe have a, a moment of dinner together or get everybody ready, ready for bed? What does the bed team, bedtime routine look like if Jesus was living your life? I think thinking through it this way, putting Jesus in our shoes, it makes it more relatable because Jesus was human. And what it helps us do is it helps us to learn to be human like Jesus was human. And so today, what I really want to spend some time doing is walking through what I feel like is this roadmap that Jesus's humanity provides for us. It's a roadmap of maybe how we could consider living our lives. And this is something taken uh, from a book titled Flesh by a pastor and a speaker named Hugh Halter. And he walks through this sequence of incarnation, which leads to reputation, which leads to conversation, which leads to confrontation, which ultimately leads to hopefully transformation. I want us to walk through that as well this morning. The verse that we're going to be using to really guide this whole conversation is John 1.14. And that verse says that, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want us to think about the word incarnation. Incarnation uh, means, you know, putting on flesh. What this verse says, John 1.14 um, God in the flesh, right? That this is God, but he's also, uh, he took on humanity. He became flesh. It wasn't that he ceased being God. Jesus didn't cease to be God, but he took on humanity. Paul talks about this again in Philippians 2. And by doing so, he dwelt among us. That word dwelt, it's significant because uh, it means to pitch his tent. That's what it literally means, the translation of it. It's also the same word used in the Old Testament it, to describe God's presence that was among Israel when he inhabited the tabernacle and the temple. And so now that word being used in the New Testament is talking about God's presence in the incarnate Jesus. And his presence wasn't restricted to a tabernacle or a temple, but now his presence was out amongst the people. It's pretty awesome to think about that way. And just a cool side note that after Jesus ascended into heaven and in Acts chapter 2, we have 
uh, the, the, the Pentecost, or yeah, Holy Spirit coming down in fire, right? We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's presence now inhabits the bodies of all believers, right? And so we are in similarity to Jesus in that way too, that while he was on this earth, God's presence fully indwelled in his body. The followers of Jesus, because of the work of Jesus and because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's presence now is embodied in the church as we go out into the world as well. And so it's relatable there as well. But look, his incarnation resulted in Jesus having presence with regular, ordinary people. Right? So Jesus had family members who knew him. He had friends who knew him. He had customers of Joseph's business that knew him. And they could, they could tell you things about his life, right? Because his presence gave people access into his life, right? So people could probably tell you things about who Jesus was, the types of stuff that jokes that Jesus laughed at, right? The, the foods that he preferred over other foods, his favorite holiday, right? People knew who Jesus was because he had a presence among people. But maybe more importantly, people understood his character, understood his reverence for God, understood spiritual disciplines like prayer and solitude that he practiced, understood his compassion for people, his radical generosity. See, his presence allowed him to have a reputation amongst people. And this reputation that Jesus had was attractive to people. People saw who the man Jesus was, and they were drawn to that. There was something unique and special about the way Jesus lived his life. And so the incarnation gave Jesus presence, which leads to the reputation that he has, and in establishing his reputation, it isn't just those 30 years that we kind of miss out on in the gospel stories that build Jesus' reputation, but it's also as he starts his earthly ministry, he starts to build his reputation. And in John chapter 2, we get to see some of this reputation uh, start happening, right? Start building this reputation as the Messiah, as the Savior, because it's in John chapter 2 that we see his first miracle. And so here's the scene Jesus is at a wedding celebration, there's a party right? Because he's present. He's here to dwell amongst people. So he's there. He's rubbing shoulders with people. He's laughing. He's celebrating a union of a couple. It's happy. It's joyous. All these things, right? And typical of wedding celebrations in Jesus's day is that people would drink wine. And usually you start out with the best first. And then as the night goes on, the quality gets a little bit worse and worse, and you save the kind of the worst for last, but the party was running out of wine. And so what does Jesus do? He turns water into wine. And what happens is people recognize that, hold up, this stuff is actually the best. Why'd you save it for last? That was not common back then. And so people start talking, right? Wow, this guy served the best wine last. And, and the scripture says that the servants knew what went on, that the servants were aware that Jesus did this miracle. So imagine the conversations happening. Hey, this guy, Jesus, he just did something a little unusual. But look how great it is. Everybody loves it, right? This, is, this guy's cool to hang out with, right? Like his reputation's building. People are talking. He even goes on to say that his disciples, it's a small little phrase, but it says, his, at the end of the story, it says his disciples now believed. Believed that he was the Messiah because of this sign. It's building his reputation. We all value good reputations, right? Any of you going on a trip to some place that you've never been, what do you do? You look at Yelp reviews, right? Where do I go eat? Where do I stay? You go do business with somebody, you look at a Google review. I want to do business with people who have good reviews, right? Maybe we've benefited even off of someone else's reputation. Maybe you work for a company that has a, a stellar reputation in a community. And, and by nature of being associated with them, people kind of lump you into that as well, right? Maybe for the better. Uh, maybe you are benefiting off of your spouse's reputation or the reputation of a family member. Maybe you represent something and because you represent something, maybe it's an organization or a church or even your family, like that thing that you represent is building a reputation because of your presence. And so this brings us to the first question that I want us to consider. If we're trying to imagine how would Jesus live my life, I want you to think about how are you doing with your presence? Right? If Jesus was incarnate, he put on flesh to dwell amongst people, he established a presence. How are we doing with our presence with people? Are we being present with people? Um, if Jesus was living my life, he would make sure his presence was felt. I believe that, right? I believe that that uh, presence that he is establishing would lead to a reputation, and that reputation of a person who's accessible and approachable 
reputation of a person who's attractive, and this would bring people in kind of to your orbit or to your spheres of life. One of the things I love about the reputation of Jesus is that um, it was attractive, that sinners actually sought Jesus out. I think that's amazing, right? We know that he loves sinners, but sinners love coming to Jesus too. That's incredible. Do sinners love coming to you, right? That's something to consider. Um, Your presence also means that you look to invest into a place. Jesus inserted himself into our story and invested 33 years of his life here. What are we doing with our presence? We're looking to invest our life into a place. We're looking to invest our life with people. And I guess just the key question, are we being present? Are we being present? So many of us have these things in our pocket that we just are absorbed with, right? We pull it out and and it gets our attention. It's our phone. And maybe you're in line at the grocery and you're killing time because you're waiting to check out, but you've got this out in front of you. You're missing what's going on around you, right? We could be present. Maybe we recognize that the woman in front of us is a single mom who looks a little worried once she gets to the register because she's not sure if she could afford it all. Maybe we miss that moment if we're doing this, but if we're present, we can step up, right? We can be present. We could be approachable, accessible. We can bless in that moment, right? We need to think about our presence because Jesus gives an example of being present, and that presence leads to our reputation, which ultimately then leads to conversation. Here's what's pretty cool about John chapter 3 and 4. We get two conversations that Jesus has with different people. Um, Jesus loved a good conversation. How many stories of the Gospels are centered around Jesus having dialogue with people? It's a ton of stories, right? And in John chapter 3, we meet a man named Nicodemus, and he sought Jesus out to have this conversation. Now, remember what happened in John chapter 2. There's the miracle at the wedding. There's also this incident in the temple where Jesus kind of, you know, went a little crazy and, and really defended his father's name. Think about the reputation that's being built. Think about the chatter. Think about what people are saying, right? And all of a sudden, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, maybe in response to this, comes to Jesus and engages in a conversation about eternal life. And Jesus and Nicodemus are going back and forth, right? Um, later on in John chapter 4, It says that Jesus was going from Judea to Galilee, and he stops at the next town over, and he engages in conversation with a woman at the well. In this moment, Jesus initiated the conversation because she came to the well that he was already at, and he's there, and by reputation, the woman knew of Jesus. She just didn't know that that was Jesus. Jesus clears us up for her in the conversation by saying, the one who you speak of, it's me. Like, I'm the Messiah, right? And so people were understanding who Jesus was, and this led to conversations, and it was conversations around dinner tables and traveling with friends and and hanging out in crowds. Jesus was present, which led to a reputation, which leads to conversations. And that's question number two to consider in our lives, is if we're asking ourselves, how would Jesus live our life? um, How can you be more intentional in your daily rhythms? What do I mean by that? Um, Look, I know we're all busy, How many of y'all right now are like really looking forward to adding another Christmas party to your list this week, right? Or another shopping trip that you have to do. Or, you know, if you have kids, another game on the schedule. (laughs) Or another practice you got to drive the carpool to, right? Like, we're busy. I get that. We We don't necessarily get excited about adding things to our life. But rather than think of being additional with these conversations, I want you to think about being intentional in these conversations. So what does that look like? Well, um... We had two examples from John 3 and John 4. One, a person came to Jesus for conversation. The other, Jesus initiated conversation. So I'll just give you two examples of what some intentionality might look like. Um, We all eat, right? I hope. We all eat food. And uh, typically it's three meals a day. So that means in the course of a week, you have 21 meals, right? 21 meals that you're going to eat, that you're going to sit around a table and and, and have some food. Um, I want you to think about this. How many of those meals could you give away? And I don't mean like give your food away. I mean, like that time that you're sitting down to eat, how many, how many of those times could you invite someone into that moment, right, and give that away? Because they have to eat, and you have to eat. You might as well eat together. There's nothing additional there, right? It's just intentional in that moment, right? I, I, I work with students, and it is rare that I eat lunch alone, okay? I, there are people in my office all the time, right? And lunches are a time where... We can get into conversations, and because I'm accessible, because I'm making myself approachable, 
Hopefully my, my reputation is in good standing. Kids come and they ask questions, right? Nicodemus came to Jesus to ask questions. This leads to conversations, but then other ways of being intentional. Um, maybe you have a routine that you're pretty glued to, right? Maybe you stop every morning to get coffee at some spot. Well, what if you made a point to be intentional with where you stopped, the time you stopped, and what you're doing while you stopped, right? If you're doing it anyway, it's not additional. It's just being intentional in the moment. So you go to the same coffee shop at the same time so that you can catch the same barista on that shift. And in those moments, you're not just telling her your order, but you're, you're engaging with her in conversation. You're initiating conversation. Um, a cool story in our family uh, a few years ago, my wife uh, likes PJs, and she is there often. And, uh, and she engaged, she, she, she befriended a barista just, just because she was there all the time, being intentional, right? And they began talking, like real conversation, life conversation, not just like, hey, how's it going, like, but real things. And this barista found out where she worked, who she was, and all of a sudden, like, they're going to get dinner and seeing a movie on a Friday night this person had more questions, right? Her presence and her reputation leads to conversation a lot like Jesus did in his life, right? Um, so as your intentionality increases uh, and your presence continues to give people access to your life, uh, oftentimes people are going to ask you questions, questions about the scriptures, questions about life. I mean, how many of you have been in a situation where maybe there's a piece of life that you, you and I say this in humility, but like, you might have this figured out a little bit better than other people, right? Like maybe you've been married for 30 or 40 years and there's some newlyweds that recognize this and they're seeking after you because they want that advice, right? Or maybe financially, you've just been blessed and, and you're like really stable financially and there's someone who recognizes that and because of your stability, they're like, hey, I, I just, my finances are a wreck. Can you, can you just help me, right? Or maybe you've been able to make career moves that, have really followed God's call in your life. And someone's like, hey, what does that look like? I feel like God's leading me in this way. I've seen you make some pretty big steps of faith. Like, can you just counsel me, right? By making yourself accessible, by being intentional, your reputation goes before you. People will come and want to have conversations with you. This is what happened with Jesus. How many times do we see in the gospel where people come to Jesus and ask the question, teacher, how can I have eternal life? Right, they engage with him in conversation. If Jesus was living my life. This is how Jesus would live it. And this leads to the, to the next step, which is confrontation, right? Confrontation. Jesus always responded. This is the, the back part of John 1, 14. You know, he, he put on flesh to dwell amongst people, but he came full of grace and full of truth. Jesus in these conversations confronted people, but it was always full of grace and full of truth. It was never an imbalance. It was always the right balance. Sometimes we, we offer just grace and no truth, and really that's just tolerance. Or other times we offer only truth and no grace, and that's just self-righteousness. But Jesus had a way of offering the right amount of grace and the right amount of truth in the right exact moment. There's a story, I think, that highlights this so beautifully, and it's in John chapter 8. There's a woman, it says she's caught in the act of adultery, which means that she probably, when she was dragged out of the house, was maybe naked, not even wearing, maybe a little clothes, right? Caught in the act. And she's brought into this kind of public sphere and, and Jesus is there and these Pharisees are, are confronting Jesus. Here's the conversation, right? Hey, Jesus, teacher, here's the law. What should we do to this woman? And this woman is, is on the ground, I'm assuming. There's, there's this weird part in there where Jesus is like bent down on the ground and he's, he's just like doodling in the dirt. And it doesn't really say what he's doing, but... If I'm there, I'm imagining the woman there and, and she's full of shame and she's maybe kind of curled up because she's anticipating just getting hit with these stones that which, that's what the law said she should be done. And Jesus is there just doodling in the dirt. And I kind of imagine him out of his grace and compassion and love, maybe just covering her with his clothes, maybe putting his hand on his shoulder, just reminding her that I'm here, like it's going to be okay. And he stands up and he answers the question to the, the way he responds to the question of what should we do with this woman? He says to these men, he says, who here is without sin? All right, he who is without sin, you can throw the first stone. And, and he bends back down. And 
Little by little, the stones start dropping. The men start walking away. Can you imagine the, the moment in that woman's life as she's hearing those rocks hit the ground, right? <laughs> and she's there. And Jesus is there too, bent down right next to her, right? Full of grace in that moment. But here's the part where it's full of truth too. He asked the woman, he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no, not one. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Proper amount of truth, right? The perfect balance in that moment. And so if we're going to have presence among people, if we're going to have a reputation that leads to conversation, these conversations need to lead to confrontations, but these confrontations need to be full of grace and full of truth. And so it leads me to the third question for us to consider And it's this, if Jesus is living my life, how is your gospel fluency? How's your gospel fluency? What do I mean by that? Um, Look, I've coached basketball for 10 years. Uh, 2015, I kind of stopped doing it because I got into school administration. And a weird uh, collection of circumstances has led me to coaching again. So last week, I started coaching again. Uh, I'm an assistant to the girls basketball team right now. And um, without getting into a lot of detail, we were on life support, the program. Like we, we, uh, we had five girls that were eligible. And if you're not aware, you need five. Right? That's, that's, how, that's the bare minimum. And we had no one else, okay? And so I was recruiting. I mean, I probably had 50 conversations with girls, like just trying to pitch the, hey, come play basketball. And so I got a few more so that we, at least we had a bench. And these poor girls, like they never even touched a basketball, like ever, ever. And so Monday we have a game, and one of the five gets hurt. And so that means one of the ones who've never touched a basketball has to go play. And it's like, oh, man. So we're there. And then Friday we had a game, and, and that one girl who'd never touched a basketball, she had to play all 32 minutes, the whole game. No basketball fluency, right? She couldn't speak basketball. You're, you're saying, hey, the free throw line. She's like, what? I, I don't know. Like, she just, it, it's, it's, it's rough. It's rough, right? But that's what I mean by gospel fluency. Like, like how well do we articulate the details of the gospel and how well do we understand it? So think through this for me. Like, how well can you articulate the gospel story? How aware are we that our sin has offended God? How aware are we that despite that, he still loved us and sent Jesus for us, right? That nothing, nothing by our own means can bring us close to him. Do we understand the gospel story? Do we understand how the gospel has changed your life? Like, do I really understand that, that I, I, am, I was old and now I'm new? That I was in the darkness, now I'm in the light? That my heart was a heart of stone, but now it's a heart of flesh? Do I really grasp that? That I'm a new creation, this new identity in Christ? And then can you see where the gospel can heal the brokenness in other people's lives? Because if you're going to confront people in grace and truth, you're doing so in a way that you're injecting the gospel in the right doses in the right spots, almost like a surgeon, just very precisely, right? Because areas of dysfunction, they're like fertile grounds for seeds of the gospel. And if our gospel fluency is way up, then when we have these conversations that lead to confrontation, we're going to know exactly how to handle things in grace and truth. We're going to know exactly like Jesus did, how to speak into the lives of people. So if Jesus was living my life, he'd be able to speak the gospel fluently, always offering the right amount of grace and the right amount of truth in the exact right moments. And then this leads us to this final sequence here, this roadmap of Jesus's humanity and it's transformation. It's transformation. Look, this is an act of God. Uh, only he can change human hearts, right? Um, and, and when we look at the life of Jesus, even in Jesus's life, these conversations that lead to confrontations, they didn't always lead to transformation, right? There's a story of the rich young ruler where he approached Jesus. He came to Jesus for a conversation. Jesus in that conversation offers grace and truth, tells him what he needs to do. And the story ends with the rich young ruler walking away. No transformation, at least in that moment. There's another story of Zacchaeus who sought out Jesus. Jesus initiated a conversation. They went and had lunch, they come out, radical transformation. And we don't know what was said, but 
If we look at all the other examples, I can assure you it was grace and truth. There was confrontation of the sins in Zacchaeus' life, and he responded accordingly, and his life was radically transformed. I don't know why that happens for some and not others, but I do know this. I trust God with it. I trust God with it. If I'm asking myself, how would Jesus live my life? Then I'm, I'm challenging myself to be present among people. I'm challenging myself to have a reputation that's above reproach. I'm challenging myself to have conference, I mean, conversations with people, to be looking for these moments. I'm challenging myself to know when to have confrontations of grace and truth. And then I'm trusting God with the transformation piece. I'm allowing him to work in the lives of others. And to me, this is why the incarnation matters. Because Jesus gives us sort of this roadmap of how we can live our lives too. That, that God working in me and through me can do some of these same things that we see happen uh, in the life of Jesus. I want to end by just sharing a story um, of a friend of mine. His name is Ben. And before I tell you this story, I, I do want to make sure um, that when you hear this story, this is not a story about me. Not at all. Um, it's a story about how the mystery of God <laughs> kind of works in and through people and how he could use circumstances and things to really move in people's lives to communicate his message of truth and love. And so I met Ben. Uh, we were, we were uh, incoming freshman students at LaGrange College, which is in Georgia. Um, so I met him as an 18-year-old and uh, we kind of began a relationship, friendship. Um, that sounded romantic. We, we started a friendship. Uh, <laughs> that was weird. Um, we started a friendship, and, and it was a unique friendship because he was, like, opposite uh, in enough ways of me that he was, like, intriguing. But then we were also, like, similar in enough ways that we were, like, kind of like um, kindred spirits. And so uh, he was an artist and, and really eccentric and um, was really talented as well. Um, but we decided our sophomore years to uh, room together, and so we shared an apartment. And that year, uh, spent a lot of time uh, playing chess and ping pong uh, pretty much every day till like 2 a.m. We weren't bad kids. We just did, you know, old man stuff. We were, we were like both old souls, right? And uh, so we, but the conversations that happened over this were incredible. And we're both two young guys trying to figure out you know, hey, we're independent from our homes. We're trying to figure out what it means to be a man. Like, we're exploring areas of our faith. Like, he was, a, he was a believer. And anyway, we just bonded over this, right? And he had a girlfriend uh, named Mary. She was, was, a, was, a, was a good, you know, healthy, strong relationship. She was there all the time. Tiffany uh, was part of that as well. So we all kind of became friends. And um, it was just a, a really cool friendship that God was forming. Um, between our sophomore and junior year, uh, ben called me up one day and he said, Hey, I've got some, some kind of crazy news. And I said, what's that? He's like, well, I've been diagnosed with cancer and, um, I'm about to undergo like chemo treatments to kind of help. And I said, are you going to like, you know, pull out of school? Like, what are you doing? He's like, no, I'm, I'm still going to stay, uh, on campus. And, you know, I, I don't want to, um, unenroll or anything. I want to keep trying to do this. And so it was an interesting junior year. We lived together that year as well, but that year was full of times of, uh, once a week, Ben was going to Atlanta to get chemo treatments. And I just remember Mary was there by his side, sort of uh, kind of helping take care of him as he was recovering physically from those treatments. They really took a toll on his body. And it's just it's hard to watch someone 20, 21 years old, like just physically being broken down like that by, this, by the drugs that he was taking to treat the cancer. And um, what we didn't know while all this was going on is it wasn't just physically Ben was breaking down, but mentally he was breaking down too. And he hit it really well, but he was probably going through some pretty severe bouts of depression uh, during this time. And finally, when it's all over, right, cancer's gone. Thank you, Jesus. He's healthy. He's good. Um, he starts just doing some weird stuff. Uh, he had dated Mary for four years. Um, they were had conversations about their wedding and their future and all this stuff together. And as soon as he was well, he just broke up with her just pushed her away. And he started doing that with all his friends. He started pushing his friends away, started pushing his family away. And um, Tiffany and I were watching this and it was hard to watch. I mean, it, it was a person who was kind of spiraling a little bit. And I remember Tiffany and I, you know, we had been married, just got married and 
They're like, hey, how are we gonna how are we gonna handle this? Because a lot of people were coming to us and they were like, hey, you know, can you do that? They knew we were, had a good relationship with Ben and they wanted us to kind of like speak on their behalf and kind of you know intervene here and there and it was just it was a crazy time, right? But what we committed to is we're just gonna love Ben. We're not going to question his decisions, you know. We're not going to judge him for the things he's doing. We're just going to be there for him. That was it. That was this, that was what we walked away kind of concluding. We're just going to constantly be there for Ben. And so we watched him really just kind of go off the deep end. He started uh, changing his appearance. He started dressing in all black. Uh, he was a philosophy minor, so he was kind of into philosophy a little bit. Uh, but he really took a, a deep dive into some pretty dark, like, writings of different people and it was really messing with his mind, and uh, he, he, with the black wardrobe, started hanging black curtains up all over his room. It was like he was sort of just wanted to be consumed with darkness. He got these tattoos on his wrist, and they started little by little. He'd get more and more done, and, and literally these sleeves that would just kind of start covering his arms. And it was like there weren't even designs. It was just like black bands that were going up. It was just really, really strange, and through it all, we're trying to be there for him, try to be there for him. One time we said, Ben, maybe it will be good for you to get out of this environment. Why don't you come home with us to New Orleans and just hang with us for Christmas? And he's like, all right, cool. So we brought him to New Orleans and we're hanging out. He did, you know, all of our family stuff and our family embraced him. And it was good times. And, you know, the smile and the joy I remember of him having, it was kind of back for a moment. And we're getting ready to go back to LaGrange. And uh, he says, hey, I'm not coming back with y'all. I was like, what do you mean you're not coming back with us? He's like, well, I met some friends in the French Quarter. I'm just going to stay with them. I'm like, you don't do that. Like, that's not, no. And he's like, no, I'm not coming back. So it was just weird. We went back and forth. Like, he didn't want to get in the car. So I called his dad, and I'm like, hey, Mr. David, I I can't get Ben in the car. And his dad's, like, crying on the other end. He's like, can you do anything? I'm like, I don't know. He's like 22. I I can't just, like, grab him and throw him in, kidnapping or something, right? So we left him. Like, we just left him on the streets in New Orleans. And his plan was that he was going to, when he was ready, hop a train and get back to LaGrange. I was like, hop a train? Like, how many movies have you watched? That doesn't, no one just, how do you even hop a train? Like, I don't, and how do you know where it's going? All these questions, right? And Ben just didn't think that far ahead, right? He was an artist. But um, he stayed in New Orleans. We left him. Six weeks later, he calls and he resurfaced again. He was in Atlanta. He had a friend passing through and picked him up and our friendship was kind of spotty. It was like he was living in Atlanta, then he was living in Columbus. Like he was all these areas around LaGrange. But through it all, we were just trying to love him. One day, Ben uh, was riding his motorcycle, and uh, a car pulls out in front of him. And Ben didn't have a chance to stop. He was going 50 miles per hour. He hit the car and just flew, I don't know how many feet, but flew through the air, uh, landed, and pretty much broke every bone on the right side of his body. Um, we were about to leave to come back to New Orleans. Uh, we were moving uh, just a week later, and so we went to go visit him in the hospital. And and Ben, I mean, he looked like a cartoon character. Like, you've ever seen those guys who have, like, the leg up on the chain? And, like, that was him. Like, his whole right side was in a cast. His arm, his collarbone, like, he had punctured lung. His ribs were broken, his leg. I mean, he was really beat up. And so he was there, and, and we're just kind of talking. And um, the, the nurse comes and brings some food. He's like, hey, do you mind feeding me? I'm like, no, not at all. So I start feeding him, and he just starts crying. And uh, <laughs> so what are you crying for? And he's like, man, just just thank you. Thank you. I'm like, yeah, it's just mashed potatoes. Not a big deal, you know? <laughs> and he's like, no, like, thank you for everything. He said, and he went on to say in so many words, he, he basically like, I screwed up. I turned my back on everybody. I messed things up that I'll, I'll never be able to repair these things. He said, but through it all, you and Tiffany were just there, and you loved me. And he was weeping at this time. And so we left, and we came back home, and that conversation, I mean, I was, I was 22 years old when that happened. Um, I think about that often. I didn't realize then how God would use that to just impact my life. But I think about that often because when I think about how Jesus would live my life, these are the things I see Jesus doing, Right? I see him having conversations with people, loving people, being there for people. Um, And I I think when we consider living this way, maybe the thing that we're hesitant about is that it costs us something. And, And but we know that's to be true. Jesus said it would cost us something. He said to follow me is going to be costly. And 
doing this, it's, it's inconvenient at times. The amount of times Ben missed appointments that we had, right? Or he wanted to stay in New Orleans while I'm trying to wrestle with his, like, that's inconvenient, right? And it's, it's a little uncomfortable at times. Living this way is going to be inconvenient. It might be uncomfortable. And living this way is also exhausting. Look, I'm tired. I go to bed tired. My kid goes to bed at 8. I'm usually in bed by 8.15. <laughs> Say that without shame, right? Like, I'm tired at the end of the day. But it's because I want to be present among people. It's because I want people to have access into my life. It's because I want to be approachable. And it's because the gospel that changed my life, I hope, is attractive enough to others that they want to have conversations about that. And to me, that's willing. I'm willing to pay that cost. I want people to understand the abundant life that we get to live in Jesus. I want people to know that they can live a life of purpose and meaning. I want people to know that they can be redeemed. And in the same way that God worked through Jesus's life, he can work through their life as well to bless and encourage other people. So look, this Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, I want to challenge all of us. Let's learn to be a little more human the way that Jesus human. Let's pray. Jesus, I am, I am encouraged even just in, in sharing these words this morning. You've blessed my heart and just the reminders of your humility, the reminders of um, how though you were fully God, you also embraced your humanity. And in that, you gave us this beautiful example of how we are to live. And it's, it's a lifestyle that, that is not so far-fetched that we can't imagine for ourselves. Your humanity makes it relatable. Um, God, your presence empowers us. It allows us to live this way. Help us to be present among people. Help us to use the reputations that uh, are been built in us by you to lead to conversations that hopefully allow us to have confrontations of grace and truth so that we can see transformation in the lives of people. Thank you so much, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you so much for coming as a baby boy and living as a man so that we can experience life the way that we have. We love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Sean. Um, we've been inspired, right? We've been inspired to to look at people in our lives and seek to apply the gospel in our minds to them before our words. And that starts by just being there. So I love these questions to consider. Please keep these uh, present huh, before us. Let's not forget these. Let's not, look, we can be present. We might be too quiet. We might be too obnoxious. We need the spirit to hit right in the middle. So that's what we do. We, we want the spirit to help us with the intentional rhythms and, and just the gospel. Look, in this week, we have, this is training ground for us right up ahead with the holidays, that we have uh, opportunity to listen to people and not hear how they've offended our opinions, but hear how they long for the Savior. And that's what, that's what you, is supposed to be unique about us as believers in the body of Christ. So let's do that. Let's do that. As we remind ourselves of our commission, let's say this together. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. See you on Christmas Eve.